0: Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Today is August 19th, 2021. This morning, David released a very thoughtful article on Baptist News Global in regards to the current and unfolding disaster in Afghanistan. In response to getting a lot of traction on that article, we thought it would be reasonable to have a conversation to further explore some of the ideas. In that piece and to connect it directly to the lives of individual Christians and to the church so that's uh, that's what this recording is today we did it as a sort of video interview discussion thing over zoom so you'll forgive us if the audio quality isn't quite perfect uh, you know internet the way it is and if you prefer a video format you can find this on our youtube or the kingdom ethics podcast facebook page thank you as always we're glad you're here let's get right to it hi i'm jeremy hall and this is the kingdom ethics podcast with me as always of course is the dr david gushy how are you doing today david
1: I'm good, Jeremy. How are you, my friend? It's Despite been a
0: while since we've done an actual podcast. Right? It's mostly been... And you know what? It's been going really well. It has been a really busy season for both of us. Uh, transitions and projects and books, lots of good things. And a lot of it we've been able to share on this platform. So if you are just listening to this one, if you found us for this conversation, you should check out... You should check out all of our content. but should check out season three because it's been really neat we've been sharing uh sort of teasers clips sections from recordings of david's upcoming book introduction to christian ethics that we found particularly interesting or helpful or provocative so that's been really fun and uh, thank you for being along for that ride so we're, we're we've all sort of been watching a disaster unfold on our TVs and phones and computer screens, the first the first images I saw from Afghanistan were actually on TikTok. Mm. As the situation started to collapse, um, it was from Afghans posting from the Kabul airport and from the city of Kabul on TikTok. So that's that's an interesting reality of how people get their news at this moment. It is. But no matter how you're getting the story, I don't think anyone's happy with the story. And there have been a lot there. If you want to go read about it, there are articles everywhere. Everyone and their grandmother has written an article, a story, an op-ed, a blog, done a vlog, done a TikTok, done a podcast. Everyone has opinions on what's happening in Afghanistan, what has happened for the last 20 years, why we started, how we finished, was it time to finish should we have left? How should we have left? When should we have left? Everyone's got thoughts. And, David, you put out a piece with Baptist News Global. Uh, did it come out last night?
1: Uh, first thing this morning, First August thing August 19th. Mm-hmm.
0: August 19th. Awesome. So mm-hmm. go find that. It's really good. You should go read it. And uh, as soon as I read it, I sent you an email that we should talk about it. And you responded, wow, you must really like the article. And you know what? I was frustrated by it because I wanted you to give me some easy answers of what to do with this i need tools for how to talk to my congregation i want help thinking through this humanitarian and national disaster uh, that is unfolding in front of the world and you didn't give me anything easy the and that that's really it's revealed in the uh, the title that the title you gave this piece was on afghanistan there were no innocent choices available, and so I'm, first off, I'm curious why you went with the term "innocent" there, because there's so many there's so many different ways that we could say this. Good answers, good choices, right paths. You you could have said ethical. There were no ethical ways to handle. It. Why innocent?
1: Mm. Um. Well, at first, I I used the phrase morally unambiguous. There were no morally unambiguous options. And that shows up in the first sentence of the final article. Um, as I have been reading comments and opinion pieces, I have been frustrated, though not surprised by, by all the people who feel that there was an obvious right thing to do here and the doofus president couldn't figure out what it was. And so that's why we're being humiliated or why this awful thing is happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Armchair generals and Monday morning uh, quarterbacks, right?
1: Right. And um, I've been reading a lot. I'm preparing for a, a new class. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of reading and thinking about peace, war, and peacemaking for my whole career. But I'm preparing a brand new class for the undergraduates in Mercer uh, on peace and war. So I've been doing a lot of reading in the weeds of the theory of uh, how Christians have historically thought about war and peace. And um, and one of the things that that reading has done is to reinforce the complexity, difficulty, and lack of clean choices in most of these situations. So um, I wanted to or felt the need to reflect some of that complexity in this article. Um, And at first I was going to start with, in the days after 9-11, what choices did President George W. Bush have at that time? And As you saw in the end, that's how I kind of concluded the article. Mm -hmm. I ended there. But, But as I wrote, I realized that we might as well start from where we are now, which is if you're Either President Donald Trump or then President Biden, um looking at twenty years of US military presence in Afghanistan, six thousand three hundred US dead, over a hundred thousand Afghan civilians dead, over two trillion dollars spent, um is is it still worth doing? Trump decided that it wasn't. Biden concurred that it wasn't and um, decided to to leave. Trump actually made a deal with the Taliban and Biden decided to follow through with it. Um, So you might say the first question is, do we agree that the benefits of US military involvement after 20 years outweighed the harms, outweighed the costs? And in the article, I talk about the test of proportionality, um, and that's one of the major tests in just war theory, that upon entering a conflict, you ask, will the benefit outweigh the harm? And every year, every six months, every day, you ask, does the benefit of this activity still outweigh the harm? And I did in the article talk about the benefits that have been being written about recently during this week about... The benefits of the U.S. military presence, uh, the, you know, keeping the Taliban from being in power and, uh, women's freedoms being better and better education, access to education and more human rights and more freedom of the press. Those are real gains. Right. They are, they are not to be dismissed. But there are also real costs, um, including ongoing war, uh, the loss of life, and the incredible expense. So either way you choose, if you choose to stay, it's not innocent because there are harms. If you choose to leave, it's not innocent because there are harms. That's why I wanted to start there.
0: So it's the that's sort of a way of saying that we were in a lose lose. There wasn't a there's no way to get out without hurting. No app op, no options didn't hurt someone.
1: No options didn't hurt someone. That's right.
0: Mm. And, and
1: that's, that's something that people seem to have trouble with because we want a hundred percent pure options. Um, but that involves, I think, not being realistic about the, the brokenness and sinfulness of the world in which we actually find ourselves. Um, and to make ourselves feel better about whatever choice we favor, we tend to dismiss either the harms of the choice that we're going to take or the benefits of the choice that the other person would have made. You know what I mean? We, we make our, our choice look better and the other choice look ridiculous. But, but that's not what this was. It's, there's a reason why we stayed there for 20 years. This basic cascade of losses and gains has been pretty predictable pretty clear for a long time
0: how should christians think about a situation where there are no innocent options Bo- both both specifically on afghanistan but also i'm thinking about in my own life uh, or working with someone in my congregation or just a listener w- what sort of tools should be brought to bear from the christian ethics toolbox for dealing with no-win situations where there's no way to come out innocent.
1: Here is where the, the tools of Christian ethics, I think, and of pastoral care, if you're in a congregational or pastoral care environment, they're very, very important. Um, I think of theoretical claims like um, the idea that most moral norms like tell the truth or protect life or whatever most moral norms have great binding force but one can think of exceptions in extreme circumstances so we have the concept of prima facie obligations that for example the obligation to tell the truth is generally understood to be not everybody agrees prima facie it's a latin phrase meaning at first appearance. Um But when one looks again, one might conclude that in this particular extreme circumstance, we may not be able to, it may not be best to tell the truth.
0: It's, it's uh, a classic uh, ethics game. You lie to the Nazi about the Jews you're hiding in the attic.
1: Right. Um So, so, there are no, in, in that, there are no innocent choices. If you lie, you violated the command against lying. If you don't lie, you're almost certainly giving up in- innocent people to be killed. So what people generally do there is they weigh up the relative harms and the relative goods and decide which has more weight, right?
0: Is this just um, utilitarianism? Is there a Jesus version of this? Um
1: It's not just utilitarianism, but it is built into the moral fabric I think of an imperfect or even broken world that we face some of these situations sometimes. Um and the more you get in the in in the thickets with people in real life, the more you see it. Mm -hmm. Um example. Um you're counseling with somebody who's in a bad marriage. They're a Christian and they believe marriage is to life, right? And you can cite Jesus teaching, you know, not to get divorced, Matthew 19, Mark 10. Um, but even there it, the Christian tradition recognizes exceptions to the general principle, like, um, in case of adultery or in case of desertion. Um, but what about borderline cases like, um, verbal cruelty? It's not listed in the Bible. But most of us pastors would know that if a spouse was the routine recipient of verbal cruelty, um, there's great harm being done or how about even more clearly physical violence, there's harm being done to leave the marriage, to break up a family, say with kids, there are real losses, real harms there. But to stay in a marriage that is abusive, there are real harms there and most counselors would today say you by all means take the person out of an abusive marriage, either verbal or physical abuse. Um, but it doesn't mean that there aren't any losses in either path that one would take. There are losses either way. Um so so these kind of situations emerge in a broken world, and Christian ethics helps us to think about how to weigh. The relative significance of various principles, how to, you might say, manage the intersection when they bump into each other, like at a, at an intersection, which gives way to which. There's also, in the issue of war, there's a whole, there's bodies of theory, generally called pacifism, just war theory, and just peacemaking, um, that can help us by, by, uh, having long arguments about how to navigate the specific issues that arise during war. And I, this, if you look at the article that is in front of us today, pacifism, just war theory, and just peacemaking all make an appearance uh, in this article.
0: In the piece, um, I'm interested in, can, can you give us the perspective of these three voices and maybe why you gave all of them space in the article? Yeah.
1: Well, Christian pacifists would say, at least this, the way of Jesus is a way of peace and nonviolence. Christians must never support or participate in war or any form of violence. Um, they would usually also say, whenever you look closely <laughs> at the mess that human beings make when they go to war, you have ample evidence of the wrongness and costliness of war, often the folly of it, the wasted life. The wasted money than the fact that it doesn't seem to solve the problems that it's intended to solve. I mean, Afghanistan was having problems in 2001. <laughs> uh, we, we responded to 9-11 by going to war there. 20 years later, it is reasonable to ask after everything where the problems solved, right? Um, and at what cost. But anyway, pacifism has the, advantage of clarity whenever we are asked we say no to war no matter the cause we say no to war no matter the provocation we say no to war and i've seen a number of pieces um in that vein since the afghanistan debacle last weekend Right? it is a it is a a position of deep appeal um of deep christian heritage and i respect it deeply um But but I also say that the pacifist position is not also innocent of complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's where just war challenges pacifism. Really what got us going at, um, in Afghanistan, the reason we were there was because we were attacked by Osama bin Laden's people on 9-11-2001. A team of 20 men commandeered four airplanes and turned them into guided missiles. And killed 3,000 civilians on American soil. And anybody who was alive remembers what that was like. Um, that was an unprovoked terrorist attack on the United States. I say in the article that not to respond to such an attack in any way, say, on the basis of pacifist convictions, um, is at least possibly or implicitly to communicate that um, that the lives that were taken that day are not of infinite worth, and that the people who per- perpetrated that attack should be free to do so again when they can get another team of 20 together, and that it is wrong to attempt to um, destroy the terrorist network that perpetrated such an attack. Now, I quote Nigel Bigger, an Oxford ethicist, who said, failure to um, act against Al-Qaeda, he's, he's not talking about Al-Qaeda, but in general, the issue of war, is would have been failure to care for something that deserves to be cared for, yeah. failure to demonstrate proper moral valuation of the lives taken and still threatened, and that no president of any country Uh, could ever conceive of not taking steps to find um, and disable the perpetrators of such an attack and to prevent such a thing from ever happening again. To refuse to do so on pacifist grounds, I say, is not morally innocent because if another such attack and then another and then another and then another were undertaken, those lives matter too. Um, It is an evil for lives to be taken and it is culpable or would have been culpable to not try to do something to prevent it. Um, so just war theory essentially begins there. It's the idea that while war is an evil, um, sometimes not defending oneself against an aggressor is also an evil. Let me see if I can find that line from Nigel Bigger. On the one hand, going to war causes terrible evils. But then on the other hand, not going to war permits them sometimes. In a just war. In a just war. In a just war, right? So so I always thought that just war theory almost never looked stronger than in a situation like after 9-11 where legitimate government authorities all over the world banded together to try to track down, capture, or kill Osama bin Laden and to disable Al-Qaeda. The mushrooming of that into a 20-year, $2 trillion U.S. military presence in Afghanistan was not foreordained. It didn't have to go that way. It just did go that way, right?
0: At what point, if I can interrupt your train of thought, at what point in the the shift, where in the 20-year story does just war really break down
1: one of the criticisms of just war theory is that is that one can almost always make the case that now is not the time to end that there's there's still too much of a threat um so just cause is still there um or it's still proportionate because the gains that are that are achieved by this are are better or outweighing the costs that we're spending. Um, I think that that what 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 happened was the military realized over time that there did not appear to be a sufficiently strong government or military, apart from the US handholding, funding, supplying and supporting and being present on the ground. And gradually over the last five years, at least, if not before, it became pretty clear that that was going to continue indefinitely. And, and at that point, the proportionality kind of instinct comes in to say, really, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 70 years, you know. Um so I would say, the clearly, the clearly just war approved action was to respond to Osama bin, bin Laden and Al Qaeda. It gets more questionable when it's setting aside the Taliban regime and setting up a new government and then supporting it. And then it becomes really questionable uh, once it stretches into, you know, five, 10, 15 years um, of of costly. Uh, military occupation, military presence. Yeah. So really, this the proportionality test gradually becomes decisive there.
0: Okay, and uh, what does the the last of those three voices of just peacemaking? What does the just peacemaker want to bring to the Afghanistan conversation?
1: Um, just peacemaking. essentially recognizes that the goal is for people within countries or between countries to be able to live um, lives of freedom, justice, and peace uh, in a sustainable way. Um, and it understands, as pacifism also understands, that war, even if it's a temporary resort, in some ways tends to create so much inflammation, harm, rage, grief, destruction, that it sets back the sustainable building of a just and peaceful society. Um, so, I mean, take take Afghanistan now as of August 19th. So the U.S. is gonna leave, NATO is leaving, um, it's essentially going to be up to the Afghan people. There probably will be other countries that want to medal, but imagine just a moment in which the people who stay in Afghanistan have to decide, can we build a society in which we can all live together without killing each other? Um, and that's going to require some of the practices of just peacemaking. Like, for example, um, creating a, a, an economic um An economic way of life that everybody has enough to eat so nobody's desperate um dealing with their environmental problems which are growing um uh, having conversations that can address past grievances and move towards mutual acknowledgement of responsibility forgiveness and a willingness to live together in the same society um the taliban government if they don't want more war is going to have to not be repressive it's going to have to have an environment in which people can live relatively decently free humane uh, lives in which their rights are respected you know so i've been reading about civil society media religious political financial and other actors who are going to stay in afghanistan who are already there who are going to try to help afghanistan uh, the afghan people live together in peace um, and All this this military intervention from outside forces over many decades has not proven successful in helping them have that kind of society. So just peacemaking says, if international folks wanna be involved, then let them be involved at the invitation of the Afghan people themselves to help them build a just, sustainable, and peaceful society. Um, One of the things that Glenn Stassen used to like to say was, Pacifism and just war theory in one way, they're, they're actually answering the same question. Is it okay to go to war? Pacifists say, never just where people say sometimes just peacemakers instead say, how can we build a just and peaceful society here? When that becomes your question, um, then you start thinking about other, other kinds of answers. You start thinking about every sector of a society that makes it healthy. You know what are the what are the arts what's happening in culture what's happening in education what's happening in um voluntary associations and economic life and religious life how do we build a healthy society which is you know by the way to its credit the united states military found itself doing some of that kind of work while it was there people who came back from afghanistan talked about all the different projects they did to try to help life be better for the people but foreign occupiers are not generally welcome forever and when those occupiers are also bombing people and killing people with drones and so on you create your own kind of resentments so I think all the three strands of theory are very helpful here um pacifism reminds us that this violence is not how God created us to be and that a there's a place for a firm no But just war theory reminds us that sometimes a firm no does not adequately take into account the evil actions of people who must be prevented from doing more evil. And just peacemaking theory then says that the logic of that is almost always one that creates spirals of more violence. And so who is going to focus on building peace? This is one of the most complex and rich areas of Christian social ethics, and it's worthy of serious reflection. By the way, one other thing I would say, did you notice in my article, Jeremy, how many links there were to other articles? Yeah. Factual matters are really significant when when it comes to a social ethics issue like this.
0: Did you do those hyperlinks, or is that from... I, I did that. Okay.
1: Yeah. it's
0: It's impressive. Every paragraph has at least one hyperlink, it looks like.
1: It's because the facts matter. When you are assessing, unless you're just a pure pacifist, in a sense, the facts don't matter because you just say no to war, right? But if you're thinking about um what is the best course of action in this situation, or what were the choices facing policymakers at this moment, you have to have as detailed a possible understanding of what is actually going on there. And that involves digging around incredible sources to get good information. But this, that speaks to something that we've been dealing with a lot, Jeremy. Our fractured political landscape means that a lot of times we don't even agree on what the good sources are or what the facts are. And people living in their la-la land of conspiracy theories and, and, and such, they're not even in a responsible conversation about what's going on, you know? um and that applies to all kinds of issues you know same thing is true like related to COVID, right just as an example it's an infectious disease and it's an infectious disease that we're learning about what reputable scientists and epidemiologists do is help to, is they they use the tools of their trade to understand how to respond to and analyze an infectious disease and they counsel us on the best courses of action to, to defeat this disease. Um, I believe, while nobody's flawless, I believe that the professionals who study these things for a living ought to be taken seriously instead of some bozo conspiracy theorist on the internet, right? Right. But people are having difficulty knowing who to trust, partly because they're being taught to have difficulty. But anyway, so if, so if anybody wants to know what kinds of news sources I take seriously, they might want to check the hyperlinks in this article. There you
0: go. There, there, there's a an Easter egg there, a, a secret <laughs> <laughs> lesson to be learned uh, yeah. for those seeking to to follow the the Gashian way of hey, seeing the world. one
1: other thing. There is one thing that's clear to me, you know, about while there are no morally innocent choices, to me there's one very clear morally imperative choice right now and that is that we we should not have our last airplane leave the airport in Afghanistan until we have rescued as many uh, of the relevant uh, people who want to leave as possible mm-hmm. and resettled them in the United States or other countries that that they want to go to.
0: I've been seeing um, retire a couple stories popping up of uh, soldiers that have come home and uh, retired Navy SEALs and such, putting together teams and gathering their own money to go rescue. Their, they know where their translator lives. They're going to go get him uh, sorts of stories because they don't believe that the state will.
1: Um, there is a problem of getting people um, to the airport right now. Um, from everything I'm seeing, there are planes there and they're ready to go. Uh, I don't know how many have been able to get out today. I mean, this is a day by day, hour by hour situation that's, that's shifting. But um, uh, if we, it would not be unprecedented, our country and other countries have gotten out thousands, tens of thousands of people at this kind of moment uh, with a regime falling and with people being made vulnerable. And why are they vulnerable? Because they worked with us mm-hmm. uh, or because they're our own citizens.
0: Yeah, right? the, the imagination goes to to Saigon and to Dunkirk. It feels like a Dunkirk operation, yeah. To me, and
1: you hold the beach as long as you can, and get as many people out as as, as you can. The difference is, <laughs> you might say, the enemy is literally at the gates, right at the airport. And so, um, so imagine a country generous enough to say, you know, eighty thousand of you worked with us. And we're not going to rest until we get as many of those 80,000 people out as possible. I think Christians, in the spirit of Jesus, neighbor love, love for the endangered, ought to be fully supportive of that. Indeed, involved in refugee resettlement. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of opportunities in the Atlanta area and all around our country.
0: Yeah, there, wherever you're listening from, there is an organization near you that needs your help. And they are ready to connect you with how you can be a part of the solution.
1: Um, See that's clear. You notice how, like, some things are murky, and you're making kind of fifty-one uh, to forty-nine percent judgment calls. Mm-hmm. That's not how I think about refugee resettlement. That's right. much more. Yeah.
0: That's a biblical mandate. You can't. There. You cannot faithfully ignore the call of the oppressed. Right. Yeah. So I'm. I'm thinking today is a Thursday. I have. I'm not preaching this Sunday, but I have the pastoral prayer sort of space where I have a pulpit to pray on behalf of my congregation and thinking about my pastoral voice I've been thinking about refugees and humans and focusing on dignity and the value of of individual humans and the the dangers of making a nation a savior and yep. the, the important of locating security and hope and faith and future in Christ and what that means for us to be mobilized on behalf of the subjugated, the oppressed, the refugee. How, how would you help me and other pastors prepare for this Sunday? Um, I'm going to try to get this up online as soon as possible. Okay. Well, you know,
1: I know you're a media maven. You're a guru of all things media. So you know what you consider doing. And by the way, if you all don't know, I'm in Jeremy's church now. So I'll know exactly what he ends up doing. <laughs> um, Is you could flash up pictures of the human beings. Mm-hmm. The, you might say the types of human beings who you feel most stricken for right now or most concerned for he would have us to pray for for example um, uh, girls in school will they still be able to go to school under the taliban pray for the women and girls of afghanistan right um, uh, u.s military veterans who who suffered or lost their colleagues in afghanistan for what they're dealing with right now as they watch the collapse of this mission, right? Um, for the, the, uh, American and allied people who are fighting desperately to save or transport lives in Kabul right now. Um, for the moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, the Afghan people who are at that airport or near the airport are trying to get to the airport and trying to get out. For the children, wondering what the future is going to hold, seeing the fear of their parents. For the um, NGOs that have been faithfully trying to improve the lives of Afghans and now what happens with them. Um, Even the Taliban themselves, by all reports that I'm reading, there is some uncertainty as to what kind of regime they're going to be this time. Mm they're sending some conciliatory signals um they there's also with social media tick tock everybody having a cell phone you know i think 70 percent of, of the people of afghanistan have a cell phone so stuff is going to be caught on video now, right you know and so um that that the taliban will be moved in a more humane more moderate direction than they than they were 20 years ago right um you pray for the Christians of Afghanistan. There are not many of them, but they're very hidden, right? Um, pray for open-hearted, uh, refugee resettlement efforts here and around the world led by Christians. Um, and pray for the wisdom of everybody in authority on the ground, uh, to the presidency. I mean, those are things that I would pray for. I don't think I don't think any of those are partisan or, or should be in any way inflammatory. Um, they, they kind of give you a panorama of the kinds of lives that are affected, you know, all of the different kinds of lives that are affected. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Very good. Well, this is indeed a very, it's, it's difficult to talk directly on the Afghan situation it's so there's so much temptation and this is looking at your article initially i was hoping for catharsis on the temptation i wanted you to do it for me to pick a side to pick a winner to point at a loser to blame somebody so that i can feel better about my inability to do anything about it about feeling complicit uh because this is my nation uh feeling complicit because of my tax dollars funding this endeavor but the truth is there are no innocent options here and we are not innocent we are in a way complacent in all of this
1: you know there's one thing that discovered i discovered jeremy i saw a stat that said only 12% of america I've been following the Afghanistan situation closely Hmm. before today, like before this week. Right. So we have outsourced decision making on this to a very small number of people and have not paid attention. So maybe there's a lesson there. Um, It's citizenship and Christian responsibility to pay attention. So maybe we'll actually we'll start paying more attention to what happens in Afghanistan now than we did for the last twenty years. That'd mm-hmm. be weird. Um, but there's a lesson there. All of these actions are being undertaken in our name. We have responsibility to pay.
0: That's a good word. I, I think a lot about the about how we give dignity to the oppressed by acknowledging the reality of their situation. Uh, that I follow these Afghans uh, on TikTok who are sharing their stories, not because I want to see them or because I enjoy seeing them, but because someone has to see them.
1: Yeah.
0: Part of our job has to be to see.
1: Right. Yeah. Especially when we, our government and our country has so much to do with what we are seeing. Yeah.
0: Well, David, thank you for your time. Thank you for this article. I'll link it to this video and the audio will be up on all of our podcasting spaces soon
1: thank you so much jeremy
0: that's good to talk to you you too all right we'll see you all soon thank you